Hello, I'm Alex Rutke and I'm a barrister at 39 Essex Chambers specialising in mental capacity law. And I'm really pleased today, after something of a break actually from the shed, um, I'm really pleased today to be joined in the shed by Steve Fleming. So Steve, I don't want to talk for you, I want you to introduce yourself. So over to you, tell us a bit about yourself, please. So I'm a cognitive neuroscientist and psychologist uh, at University College London. Um, so I'm based in the Department of Experimental Psychology and I run a research lab based at the Wellcome Centre for Human Neuroimaging. So we use brain imaging technology to study the brain basis of um, metacognition and self-awareness. Um, and I um, am also co-lead of the um, metacognition workstream um, of the Welcome Funded Mental Health and Justice Project. Brilliant. So one immediate question for me, and I suspect for, for maybe some of the other people listening to this, is help us with what metacognition is. So metacognition literally means cognition about cognition. Um, so thinking about our own mental states, our own thought processes, our own behaviour. Um, and it's had a fairly long history in psychology. So people in um, the 60s and 70s were interested in how metacognition gets into um, guiding child development. So how children know what they know, what they don't know in terms of educational settings. Um, but more recently, we've been interested in studying metacognition um, and how it works in the adult human brain and how it goes wrong in, um, in disorders, um, psychiatric and neurological conditions. Um, and really the, what, what we're trying to do in, in our research is to approach metacognition with the tools of um, experimental psychology to develop laboratory measures of people's metacognitive abilities. And that typically involves bringing people into the lab, getting to, them to do some um, computer-based task, uh, such as judging um, images, presented on a screen um, or judging um, whether they remember something they've learned earlier in the in the in the session um, and then the important component that allows us to measure metacognition is that we ask them after every judgment they make to rate how confident they feel in getting the answer right and so from those kind of data once we have um, many of those confidence ratings from a single person we can then build up a picture um, of how your confidence is related to your accuracy on the test. Um, so intuitively, if you have high confidence when you're right and lower confidence when you're wrong, then your metacognition is in good shape and we can quantify that using various um, tools we have available. Um, we can fit uh, models of how metacognition might work and derive parameters from those models which kind of characterize your your personal um, fingerprint of, of metacognitive capacity. Um, and from those kind of data, we've then been really, the, the, the studies we're running in the lab is, is to investigate how metacognitive ability relates to various features of you as a person. So your, your personality, your other features of cognitive function, um, the kind of uh, your, your um, if you're, if you, variation in mental health symptoms, for instance, um, and also then relating how you're able to solve those tasks, how you're able to actually rate your confidence in performance and relate those to various measures of brain function 
um, that we collect using uh, tools like functional MRI and uh, um, MEG, which is a tool that allows us to measure subtle changes in the magnetic field um, caused by changes in neural activity. Um, so that's really the kind of research we're, we're, we're doing in the lab. Um, and it's, it's designed to kind of quantify individual differences in metacognition in, 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 in you know, variety of populations. Gosh, that's interesting. So in your work, have you moved, as it were, at one level that sounds like uh, identifying a baseline of, of meta, sort of, as it were, I don't really want to use the word normal, but, you know, base, let, let's just use the wrong word for a second. And then I'm interested in, because you, you were talking about interest, you were interested in metacognition in the presence of mental disorder or neurological mm -hmm. disorder. Is your work yet at a stage where you're invest, you're doing, as it were, the experimental work looking at that? Yes, yeah, so, so really we're kind of bridging the gap between, quote, normal brain function and what goes wrong in disorders. So one, um, one uh, kind of key set of findings from the past decade or so of work on metacognition has been a focus on the role of the prefrontal cortex towards the front of the brain and how that, um, the, its functions allow us to encode um, self-reflective judgments about you know, how we're doing in various areas of our lives. Um, so, I mean, there's lots of different ways of investigating this, but for instance, when you just think about whether particular adjectives apply to yourself um, or someone else, then you're, you reliably activate the medial prefrontal cortex. And we see similar activation patterns when people are rating their confidence in their, in their decisions um, on a variety of tasks. So one interesting finding from that has been the notion that metacognition is quite domain general. So we, we think we use similar um, machinery in the brain to reflect on um, our performance in a variety of different tasks. And the implication is we're then using similar machinery to reflect on how we're doing in our daily lives. And that's more difficult to study, but that's the implication of that work. And so what's interesting is we can go from that, which is the study of the healthy brain, um, to what might be going wrong in disorders. Now, one of the most obvious um, places to start there is, and this is what work I was doing as a postdoc in New York, is to look at patients who have had um, damage to the prefrontal cortex, either due to tumor resection or due to stroke. And there you see reliably um, that there are often um, decreases in metacognitive ability without necessarily corresponding decreases in say IQ or, um, or cognitive function just measured on the tap. So, so in one study, we looked at um, IQ matched um, controls and patients who had had um, damage to the prefrontal anterior prefrontal cortex due to um, surgery for, for, for removal of a tumor. And even though they were matched on all aspects of the cognitive function, there was slight difference in memory, but apart from that, they were pretty much similar to the controls. There was a, almost a 50% drop in these objective metrics of metacognitive sensitivity in the patients. Um, so that suggests there's a kind of subtle but quantifiable change in their awareness of, of, of function. So, so we're very much starting with the kind of more obvious cases on, in, that you can um, pick up on a brain scan in terms of changes in prefrontal function but we're now getting more interested in perhaps the more subtle changes but um, systematic changes that you might also observe in various psychiatric conditions. Interesting 
And, and that leads me to when, I mean, one of the areas that I know that the work stream is, is really interested in, or the, the, the mental health and justice work stream that you're in, um, is interested in, is, is thinking about insight in the context mm. of psychiatric disorders. And I just, I'd be really interested in, in I mean, we've had some fascinating conversations as we're offline previously, but, but just, just reflecting on that and, and how the work you're doing is digging into this quite contested concept. Yeah, so so I think there are um, very interesting overlaps between the work we're doing in the metacognition work stream and the work going on in the insight uh, work stream. Um, I think metacognition and insight are related but different concepts. So insight typically refers to um, awareness of illness in a clinical context, whereas metacognition we think operates in in our daily lives even if we're not um you know thinking about anything to do with um symptoms or illness or so on so so we use metacognition to think about whether our memory is accurate or whether we've made a good or bad decision for instance um so that that is something we think is kind of a, just a important and normal function of the healthy brain um but there's interesting hints that metacognitive capacity in the, the kind of thing we're measuring in the lab might then be related to um, to if, if that becomes impaired, then one consequence could be um, lack of insight in a clinical context. Um, so we're really only just starting that work. So one obvious place to start is, and this is studies that we're currently running at the moment, is to study in patient groups systematic um, relationships between insight as um, as quantified clinically as part of an interview and changes in metacognition as quantified by our um, tasks. And at the moment, we don't really know the answer to, to how those are going to be related. Um, but I think conceptually, they, there's interesting relationships there in terms of if we think as involving some self-reflective capacity, then I would predict that there would be close relationships with, with the more general concepts of metacognition. Yeah, no, that is super interesting. And I, 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 it's very interesting also to hear the caution in your voice um, in, terms of how, how, in terms of thinking about this. And I suspect the same caution might, might appear when I then venture even further into thinking about, well, the, the sort of thinking that you're doing here and the work that you're doing here what, if anything, do you think it might be able to help us with in due course in thinking about another contested concept, or quite often contested concept of mental capacity, so decision-making capacity? Because so much of what you've been saying, especially on, on, on the metacognition, the idea of kind of confidence levels and self-reflection, mm. you know, one could at one level, the lawyer in me is saying, well, does, that sounds a bit like using and weighing. Mm. And I'd just be super interested to hear the insights that you're getting sorry terrible pun there but you know the work <laughs> that you've been doing and how that's you know the, the thoughts that you might have been having in relation to, to decision making capacity yeah so I think it's early days I think but I think it is promising that there could be um there could be uh things to discover about um how we think about capacity in cognitive terms by studying metacognition. And so I think one link we've been pursuing in the lab um, 
recently has been thinking about how does metacognition help us make decisions? And one um, line of work, this is led by my former PhD student, Max Rollwager, he was looking at um, how does having confidence in an individual decision, and these are you know, incredibly simplified decisions that we're getting people to make in the lab, like which box contains more dots, that kind of level of decision. But they, those kind of decisions allow us to then study this question precisely. Um, so we can then ask, how does, having, how does your confidence in that decision affect how you maybe change your mind when you're presented with new information? How do you take on board advice that you're getting from other people? And more generally, how do you become flexible in your beliefs? How do you, how do you kind of adjust your beliefs in response to new information? Um, so one of the PhD students in the MHJ projects, Elisa van der Plas, has been um, thinking about this in the context of like, if you're in a clinical setting and you're getting advice about which treatment to have, so this would be a kind of classic case where capacity might be contested, for instance. Mm. There, I mean, we can't, very hard to study that in the moment, but you can think about, oh, well, if the advice taking process there is similar to the kind of advice taking process we're studying in the lab, then metacognition seems to be playing a big role because what we found in the lab is that if you have good metacognition, then you'll be um, able to adjust your confidence in relation to the degree of belief about a decision that we can then quantify objectively. Like we can tell you whether you were right or wrong on that particular choice, unlike many real world decisions. And so what we've what we found there is people with good metacognition because they can adjust their confidence in relation to their accuracy, when, they're, when they are likely to be wrong, they have lower confidence and that opens them up to be able to take on board new information. So there's a close link between metacognitive ability and the ability to take on board new information when you need it. So I think it's incredibly early days, but yeah. there's a route there towards kind of maybe not necessarily saying, well, you know, this is a component of using way. It's more like, saying, well, using way is a, is a legal concept, but yeah. we can maybe start to unpack the, the types of decision process that might be needed to meet that um, legal requirement. And I think metacognition is likely to come into play there. Oh, that's super interesting. And actually, I just, because one of the things I spend lots of time bothered about is, is supporting decision-making capacity. Mm. I'm wondering, part of me is just wondering, and is, are there any things that you, you've, uh, in the work that's done, that enables people to improve metacognition? If you see what I mean, is it, or is it just a thing, and it can be impaired by, you know, the surgery you've described, mm. but are there any things which can be done to enable people to, as it were, develop metacognitive skills? Because one part of me is thinking, it could be said it's a bit alarming if one's moving towards metrics, and then saying, well, actually, because you're in this, you know, yeah. we're then, you know, we're then going to translate that into a legal thing. Well, I'm afraid you don't meet whatever metric, therefore, we're going to say. And there's, I could certainly see some people saying, oh, I'm a bit worried about that. But if one of the things is actually, if you identify there's a possible deficit or at least a difference in how that's being done, I'm just interested if, if any of the studies have shown, you know, yeah, it's a great question. Um, and I think there's a couple of things to say there. So first of all, maybe just to pick up on the second point, 
I, I don't want to give the impression that we're trying to develop a test here of kind of, you know, black and white, you've got good metacognition or not, or, and, yeah. and also a lot of these findings, and this is true for the majority of cognitive neuroscience, are at the group level. So we're, we're building on, we're kind of inferring what's happening in, in, in the general population from statistical models that we're fitting to the group. So, and these associations, even though they're reliable, might not be very big. So there's a big difference between statistical significance and the size of an effect. So you might have a significant effect across a group of hundreds of people, but actually the difference it makes to you as an individual might be very, very small. So that's, that's one point to make. That's a very general point about just how science can inform policy. I think it's hard to go from the group to the individual. Um, but on the, the other point about malleability, there's good, I mean, I think there is optim, optimism there. Um, so one finding that, that we've been pursuing is, is the notion of, as I mentioned earlier, domain generality. So the same, it seems that you you use similar metacognitive processes to reflect on your performance in task A as you do to reflect on your performance in task B. So that's promising because that suggests if we can then develop a way of training up your metacognition in the lab, then maybe that's going to have benefits for, for you in general in daily life. And we have found that there's, you know, there are ways of doing that. Um, at the moment, we're um, studying a training procedure where we give people 20 minutes a day of feedback on their metacognitive judgments about a very simple perceptual uh, judgment task. And what we found is that um, people do improve, their metacognitive capacity improves over that two weeks, even though their perceptual task performance hasn't changed. Um, so they become better at knowing when they're right and better mm. at knowing when they're wrong. But what's really cool about that um, study is that they then also improve their metacognition on a memory task that they've never been trained on. So they become better at knowing when they've got the answer right or wrong on a, on a completely different memory task, even though they've never actually been trained on that particular task. So that's really, um, you know, that's really promising. And we've now got data using brain imaging that we're analyzing to try and study how that training effect might affect these brain circuits I was talking about earlier that encode confidence in our performance and so on. So I think there's, there's promise there. I mean, what we'd really want to know is, does any of that have any impact on your daily life? Um, and that's really hard to study because when people leave the lab and we don't know, you know, what's happening there, but I think there are, you know, there's, there's promise and there's also lots of other work on, you know, there's different labs around the world that are pursuing different approaches to this. Some people using, um, you know, neurofeedback interventions. So you can actually train people to activate particular patterns involved in these metacognitive judgments. Um, so there's lots of different approaches that are being taken to this, but one implication to guess, I guess, to come back to the capacity issue is that if we can maybe develop ways of improving metacognition in general, then I like the idea that this could act as a kind of enabling context mm -hmm. for decision-making. So it might not be the silver bullet. It might not turn you, it might not make your decision about this particular financial problem better, but it might generally be one component in a package of support that we could give to someone. Gosh. Oh, it's so interesting. And I'm sorry, sorry, we're out of time. There are so many other things. And, and actually one thing I'd really love to have picked up with you is, and I, but I'm really glad you at least touched on it, is the importance for law 
of understanding statistics and that move from the general to the particular because yeah. that's where things so often go so badly wrong so thank you very much for at least glancingly or at least bringing that in in, in that headline term and I'm also going to put a link to the, well, I'm actually going to put a link to the, the, the general work of the Mental Health and Justice Project, but the specific work which is being done by the lab, because it is, it's super interesting. Um, and as you say, it's kind of early days in lots of the things that kind of inside and capacity, but it's, it's fascinating to watch it unfold. So thank you so much for your time, Steve. I really appreciate it. Great. Well, thank you, Alex. It was fun.